0: Bye. And welcome to a new year of the Dynamic Nonprofits Podcast. I'm your host, Dan Sonners, and we're going to start off 2023 by chatting with our friend Andrew Olson. Many of you will know Andrew. He's Senior Vice President at Dickerson Baker. He's also host of the Rainmaker Fundraising Podcast and a two-time best-selling author. He's written 101 Biggest Mistakes that Nonprofits Make and the Rainmaker Fundraiser's Guide to Landing Big Gifts and uh, we're here today to talk about finding a better way to fundraise and uh, thrilled to welcome Andrew into the show right now. Andrew, how are you doing today?
1: Hey, Dan, I'm doing great, man. Thanks for having me on the show again. Uh, Happy New Year. I'm excited to kick off the year with you.
0: Yeah, Happy New Year. Uh, It's an honor to have you here. I've been a big fan of your work um, and I've been fortunate to be a guest on your podcast, so happy to have you on and here to chat about fundraising. And um, as I said, a a lot of our guests are going to be aware of your work in the industry, your thought leadership, but for anyone who may not be familiar with you, would you mind kind of taking us through your origin story? How did you get into this great business and anything else you'd like to share with us?
1: Yeah, no, thanks for asking. You know, um, like pretty much everybody else in this business, uh, or at least most of the people, I would guess, I, I didn't set out trying to like get into the nonprofit sector or get into a a service business uh, working with nonprofits. I, um, I, I went to college in Northeast Georgia and during college I started managing commercial real estate, uh, and, and commercial properties in Atlanta. I moved to Los Angeles to, to get married and hated the work that I was doing. And so, um, Interestingly enough, I, my father-in-law at the time, uh, well, he's still my father-in-law, but at, at, at the time he was in a, a men's uh, church group with a gentleman. Uh, so he introduced me to this guy. He said, you know, I don't know what he does, but it's something to do with marketing. It's, it's probably similar to, to the work that you do. And come to find out, it was a gentleman named Mark Reed. Uh, for those of us who have been in the industry long enough, uh, that Reed name will, will um, you know, ring, ring memories of, of Russ Reed. So Mark is Russ's son. And uh so so my entry into this uh this entire sector uh went through that you know connection to Mark and and you know started my career almost 25 years ago now, uh working at Russ Reed with with rescue ministries and, and other organizations, uh helping to raise money in, in direct mail.
0: Uh that's incredible. And it is like so many others um that you just kind of find your way into the business and it just ends up being a fit and and you kind of gravitate towards it. Um, being a veteran in the industry, do you think that um, the fact that so many of us are, are not formally trained in it, um, do you think that's an advantage for the sector? Does it make us a little more dynamic that we have such Uh, a wide range of eclectic backgrounds that come into it and there's no preconceived notions, or do you think we would better fit from some more um, formalized education of people that decide to get into this business? Hmm. You know, I, I
1: probably the answer is yes. And and what I mean by that is I I think that it's really uh, beneficial that there are so many different perspectives that speak into the industry. And um, you know, for, for example, like, my, my education, I have a philosophy degree. Like, you know, there's no reason why someone would say, Hey, that sounds like a great thing to, you know, jumping off point for a fundraiser, except that, um, you know, I spent a lot of time in school learning about critical thinking, learning about how to challenge assumptions, learning how to write well, learning how to speak well and debate um, and and learning to understand people. I think, you know, when I meet folks in our industry who have a background in psychology or journalism or, you know, things like that, those are kind of some of the the skill sets and tools that I think make us really good at our work, right? Mm -hmm. At the same time, I, you know, I, I don't know that I would say we need a formalized education process. Uh, although I, I'm not opposed to it, I, I used to teach a, a fundraising program at University of Saint Thomas in the Twin Cities, and and you know there are plenty of other great, uh, great uh, organizations and universities and, and schools that that teach fundraising programs. But I, I, I think the thing that I wish we did more of is on the ground sort of apprenticeship style learning. I, I think that. Um, we would raise up an entirely more capable and, and probably happier group of fundraisers if we if we helped people who are new in their career develop skills in a different way where there was a lot more kind of on the ground hands-on learning versus I, I don't know about you but when I first started in this industry and when I certainly when I worked on the nonprofit side um, it was kind of a hey you're here there's your chair go get to work raise money you know, and without any kind of formal onboarding or training. And I'm sure there are some organizations that do that really well, actually, but I think most probably don't. And so I, you know, more, more so than a formal education program, I think that, you know, treating this like a craft and, and developing sort of the, the apprenticeship type model could be really good for our entire industry.
0: Yeah. That makes a lot of sense uh, to me. I, I, I had a degree in broadcasting and I agree that a lot of the writing and the critical thinking and um, honestly, just figuring out how to communicate through mediums has come in handy for me in ways that Mm -hmm. I never anticipated. Um, But no formal background, uh, maybe one free elective in marketing, um, certainly no fundraising background. So I agree that um, an apprenticeship program or at least more of a focus on that uh, could be really helpful because there are so many people that don't even know about the business that would never think about it as a career. And I see that it's uh, a great industry for go-getters, people that can take life experience and kind of hit the ground running. But if you're um, if if you're in need of kind of more focused training, here's what you need to do. Here's how to do it it can be very difficult because it is such a specialized skill set. So that's, that's an interesting take. I, I, I tend to agree. We, agree, we uh, benefit from the eclectic nature of those who work in this business, but we could probably do a little bit more to, um, to, to spark the pipeline of people that um, we hope to be the next great generation of fundraisers.
1: Yeah. and I mean, actually just hearing you say that uh, makes me think, you know, the other side of that and the other, I think uh, significant benefit could be, there are There are plenty of people who I think are passionate about a cause who either can't afford a university program mm-hmm. or who simply don't have access. So I, I think you know if 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 as a sector, we embrace this idea of sort of training up our own and 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 kind of you know getting back to grassroots um, training and development, um I think it expands the the knowledge set and allows us to tap into talent that might otherwise not have access to the things that that allow people to get into a business like this
0: yeah absolutely um well let's talk a little bit about dickerson baker uh do you mind sharing a little bit about um what you do there and then um to set up our conversation why do you think we need to find a better way to fundraise and then i'm really excited to kind of get into uh the, the tactics here and your philosophy about what you're trying to build
1: yeah so um Dickerson Baker. So they, uh, we are a 30-plus a year old uh, organization, uh, primarily for for the last three and a half decades, serve ministries and other nonprofits um, in in really three different areas: uh, talent development and recruitment. So executive search for c level, you know, executives for chief development officers, chief advancement officers, heads of school, CEOs, things like that. Um, Fundraising solutions primarily in the major gift arena. So um, designing fundraising programs for for organizations and and then helping to equip train and and manage, you know, sort of major gift operations. and, and then capital campaigns. We do quite a lot of of capital campaign work still to this day. i I have worked with um, Derek Baker, who's the CEO of the organization for the better part of a, a decade, maybe a little bit more. And, and for years, he and I would would share clients, right? So I would often call him and say, hey, Derek, you know, I've, I've got this client that I'm doing a direct mail program for. They really need to grow a major gift program or, the, or they have a need for a capital campaign. Could, could you come alongside and help build that for them? And conversely, he would often call me and make an introduction to some of his clients where, you know, maybe they did a feasibility study and they identified that the, the organization has a great mission, but they don't have the the donor file to support uh, a major fundraising initiative so one of the first things that they need is actually to to build a, a larger you know base of supporters so he he'd bring me in to to you know do that work and help build an organization pipeline so we you know 10 years or so we worked together um good friends uh trusted colleague and and often you know we would we would talk about the challenges that are that our sector faces particularly with respect to how we raise money, how we engage donors, and and why uh, why it is that in most organizations there's a pretty radical disconnect between how um, how donors in the annual fund kind of mass market environment are treated versus the the donors who who somehow level up or, or get on the. The um, radar of a major gift officer or a major gift team, right? Mm-hmm. And and how that disconnect actually damages an organization's ability to maximize their net revenue and their mission impact. So for a long time, we we you know talked about that. We always wondered, you know, what would it look like to do this differently? And then a year or so ago, we got together in Asheville, North Carolina, and and started having a conversation more deeply about this. And and we came to the conclusion that. You know, there, there's not an incentive really anywhere in the marketplace for um, for a consulting firm or a direct marketing agency to build that model uh, because it it goes against a lot of just you know sort of what's ingrained in the thinking um, uh, in in those organizations. And and so if we were, you know, if we want something like that to happen and we really want to change the the dynamic of how organizations raise money and build relationships with their supporters, um, it was something we probably needed to do ourselves. And so I came here, uh, gosh, it's probably about 90 days ago to lead the the major gift consulting program uh, at Dickerson Baker, but also with the intention of building a new fundraising agency that that sees the world differently and that really embraces this idea that there's a better way to fundraise and there's a better way to build relationships with donors um, and, and to truly kind of upend what direct response fundraising has been for organizations and push nonprofit leaders to think differently about everything from donor acquisition all the way through to their major gift and capital campaign efforts.
0: That's really interesting. And it, it definitely, uh, resonates a lot with me. Um, do you think that, Being a a 25 year veteran of this industry, um, why do you think there's been so much inertia to kind of question some of these systems, um, our approach to um, how we look at donor acquisition and then building relationships with low to mid-level donors? Um, Do you know, because a lot of what you're saying intuitively just makes a lot of sense. Uh, Why do you think there's been so much inertia over the years, kind of changing the approach of
1: how we we look at these um, lower tier donors. you know for for a long time, it's just because it wasn't necessary to think about it other ways, right I, I remember talking to a couple of ministry organizations probably probably seven, eight years ago and and saying to them, you know, if I'm looking at your data, your your trends are going in the wrong direction. you need to be spending money. Not in you know doing more acquisition or or even more, you know, like lapse reactivation mailings, you need to take that money and invest it in relationship fundraising. And you need to go hire a person to meet with these donors and to take them on a different journey so that you can start to secure five, six, and and maybe even seven figure gifts for your ministry. and And it was so interesting because the CEO said to me, "You know, you're the first agency person to ever tell me not to spend money with your company." and to spend it somewhere else. Um, and you're also the first to tell me to do it, you know, to, to spend money on people and and to raise major gifts instead of doing, you know, more acquisition or more, you know, add a mailing or something like that. And he said, it used to be that I didn't even have to think about, uh, you know, major gift program because I was making so much money in the mail that I could just say to an agency, hey, do this work for me. And then I could go focus on other stuff, right? I could do program development. I could do, you know, um, outcomes tracking, I could go, you know, create a new program to serve a different community or whatever. He said, you know, it's, things are changing. And, and now there's this added layer of complexity where I actually have to think about the relationship with our donors when I didn't used to, you know, to have to do that. And so I think part of it is that the the marketplace is shifting, right? That, mm-hmm. you know, it it used to be that you could put something in the mail and, you know, kind of just sort of, you know, wait for checks to come in, right? And and to a large extent, that still happens for a lot of organizations. We certainly saw it during the pandemic, but um, but we are seeing some pretty significant changes in the way that people engage with direct response. We're seeing a just, you know, philanthropically overall, um, a pretty massive decline in the number of people who are giving and, and certainly to the, you know, those who are giving to charities that are new to them. And then, you know, at the same time, we have these these other complexities um, that that are making it, you know, more challenging to to just rely on sort of the set it and forget it programs like direct mail and and even digital marketing. Right. Right. Um, One of the things that I think is really uh, interesting and and sort of foreshadowing on, on this. Pew Charitable Trust just released i think it was like uh, December 12th or 13th they released uh, some data showing 50 years of aggregate income distribution across three different categories right so they looked at low income middle income and and high income households in the US and they wanted to see kind of what was the the aggregate income distribution across those those three categories and no surprise like the the lower income category pretty much remained the same i think you know for for 35 or 40 years they were at 10% of total aggregate uh, household income in the States. And and it's dropped to 8%, you know, over the last decade. And, and then the the high income, again, no surprise, uh, went from say 29 or 30% to like 50%, right? So a pretty significant uh, leap in, in aggregate income for that high earning group. But the, the part that's really concerning to me as a, as a marketer and a fundraiser, is that the the middle class, that middle income group, which is the largest group of of individuals in the country and makes up a lot of the people who are the traditional donor class for direct marketers, um, that group has lost 47% of their aggregate income over the last 50 years, and it's continuing to decline. So I, I sit back and I look at that and I think, if I am a nonprofit CEO, if I'm a chief development officer and I, or a board member, and I am not saying to my organization, we can't rely and trust traditional direct marketing the way it's always been done. And we can't continue to rely just on new acquisition. And we can't continue to rely just on mass market tactics. If I'm not talking to my organization about what our investment strategy is to engage and develop deeper relationships with high net worth donors. Um, I'm really putting my organization at risk because the writing is on the wall that the the split in income is so significant and it's only getting more significant that pretty soon we're all going to be fighting over a very small portion of the pie.
0: So in some ways, uh, do you think the sector has been kind of a victim of its own success that we've... Um really failed to kind of imagine a different way of doing things because for so long now, many organizations have been able to kind of hum along with either arbitrary budgeting and Georgia saying, Hey, I want to make money on prospecting. I want to make back 60, 70 cents, or just making those decisions based on how much the board wants to allocate, um, with no measurement at all for um, taking into account the backend value of donors. And I, I think uh, let me know your thoughts on this as well. I'm, I'm interested here is I think a lot of organizations have had to take a hard look at that model over the last year um as we're dealing with the first inflationary crisis in forty years and the way that affects the economy and consumer spending in very different ways than a conventional recession. I think in some ways, um, much more systemic than what we saw during the Great Recession, two thousand eight, two thousand and nine. Um, so your timing, is, is certainly impeccable um do you think that this the last year or so has has really forced non-profit leaders to take a hard look at how they're making those investment decisions and um and, and whether they are in fact prior, prioritizing these back end relationships and and um building relationships with um with 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 donors uh after they come at the door
1: yeah i i think um, to answer your first question, yes, I, I think we've, as a sector, largely been lucky for a lot of years, right? That the American public has just been incredibly generous, and so when um, when we've had market blips over the last couple of decades, they've they've never been significant enough to really damage long-term fundraising revenue, and the channels that we've used to raise money, in, particularly in direct response have been effective enough. Um, and, and I do think some of that goes back to, you know, the, the way boards uh, mandate budgeting processes, the way organizations expect um, sort of immediate return on investment and, and, and immediate net revenue, um, even to their long-term detriment, right? And, um, and and I also think that our industry, uh, that those of us who have been, the you know the the agencies and and vendor class um, are are partly to blame for this as well, right? So, in, you know, I I posted yesterday on LinkedIn um, because uh, there was a there was a direct marketing agency CEO who sent out a, a email saying individual giving participation is down, you know, again this year, and there's a you know, significant risk in that. Therefore, that means you need to invest more heavily in donor acquisition. Mm-hmm. And and I, I thought to myself, like, I couldn't think of a worse strategy. And I'm not saying organizations shouldn't do acquisition, don't mishear me on that. But, uh, you know, I, I likened it to the idea of saying, my car is broken down, and I have a, a leak in my fuel pump. and And every time I put gas in, it just Flushes right out the back, right? So my solution should should never be add more gas to that car, right? I have to actually fix the problem so that it, the tank holds the gas, and then once it's fixed and the car works again, then I can add the gas back in and we can grow again, right? But it's um, it's fiscally irresponsible and and you know just frustratingly stupid for agency leaders. To push this idea of do direct more do more direct mail acquisition do more digital acquisition, when their clients can't seem to hold donors, right? And we continue to see this participation decrease. And and no one there's a lot of talk about retention, right? People are there's all all sorts of you know webinars and conference calls and even conference sessions where we talk about retention. But then when it comes down to it, nobody budgets for it. Nobody says, hey, wait a minute. If you want to deliver a different retention number here, you actually have to behave differently. You have to provide a different experience to your donors. You have to you have to fund your organization differently. You have to invest differently. You have to shift priority both from a strategic and a budgetary process but even a headcount, you know, approach to to delivering a better return on investment in the long-term versus delivering an annual return on investment. Right. And I
0: think it's even more challenging with direct mail because there's so much pressure to recover the um, investment you're making to acquire donors as quickly as possible. I have noticed a bit of a shift, uh, the digital side, where there's a lot more discussion about the value of high value communication and cultivation and not always asking for things and being responsive to the donor. Um Personally, I think a lot of those same principles would, would uh, provide a lot of value to direct mail donors as well. It's a much more difficult sell, though, because of the overhead cost of direct mail and the fact that uh, there is so much pressure to recover your investment as, as quickly as possible. Um, but very valuable conversation. I really like how you're linking um, major donors to direct response because... Um, most of the organizations I work with have a story of a little old lady who gave $10, gave $25 and built up the chain over the years, passed away, and then left uh, a large estate gift to the organization that they may not have even known that she had. So there is a lot of hidden wealth out there. And the only way you can build those relationships is with treating donors at all giving levels with respect and dignity, and that their time is very valuable. So um both from a direct response standpoint, but also from uh, uh, a major donor cultivation point of view, it makes a lot of sense to me what you're saying. Um, let's um, let's talk tactically um, for uh, low or mid-level donors. What does a better um, donor experience look like for them it, when they give to their favorite organization?
1: Yeah. So, uh, you know, I... In, in our firm, you know, we we've we've started to talk about this kind of this better way approach and and it really kind of permeates everything, right? So l- let me let me describe what I see right now in, in organizations and and you'll pretty quickly hear sort of what the what the counter argument is. Right. So I I I sat with an organization a few months ago and, and we were looking at their retention numbers and trying to figure out, you know, why, why do you have such low donor retention? And and then someone said something in the meeting that bells just went off, you know? They said, and it wasn't even connected to the retention issue. It was connected to a cost conversation. And they said, oh yeah, we don't don't receipt anybody who gives a gift under $50. And and so, you know, that's when the whole room got quiet and we said, well, okay, we just figured out your retention issue, right? Because if 80% of your donors give gifts under $50 and you don't receipt them, you don't thank them, then of course you are you you are essentially pushing those donors out the door, right? Because we we know from survey data, and we know from testing, and we know from just you know fifty years of doing this work day in and day out that if you don't thank a donor, the likelihood that you're going to get another gift and build a meaningful relationship is you know in the single digits, right? And so. Uh, Oftentimes, and it's, it's, it's so frustrating, but oftentimes we will see and hear this conversation where someone says, well, you know, we're trying to cut costs. And so we're going to stop receding donors under this level. And, and what's so interesting to me is when we look at donor files and we look at the history of, of a major donor, to your exact point you made earlier, we see that the first gift they started with was $25 mm-hmm. or, or $50, right? And so if we take the position that, well, it's just, it's, it's you know, cost conscious of us to not receive anything under $50, what are we doing to the future pipeline of our organization by, by doing that? We're, we are saying to donors, your gift doesn't matter unless it's at a certain level, Right. Uh, Nathan Chappelle actually uh, was on my show uh, uh, a few weeks ago to talk about generosity crisis their new book and he said you know it's there's this habit of saying once someone becomes generous we will treat them well right and and instead we need to treat people well and in in doing so help them become more generous right and 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 I think he's spot on I I I didn't get his exact quote right there but but that that's the essence of what he was saying um you know this idea that you have to qualify with a certain gift level before i say thank you it's just really freaking arrogant right and and i think you know makes the point to a donor that wow this organization just wants my money right they don't care about me so when it comes to how do we treat people better sometimes it's as simple as saying things like how about we say thank you in an authentic way or you know particularly for for large mailers I've talked to organizations who tell me things like, oh, we haven't changed our thank you letter copy in two years. So anytime I give a gift, I get the same wrote thank you letter that I've gotten, you know, if I give two gifts a year, I get the same thing twice a year. And imagine, you know, if if you're asking me for a gift and you're telling me that you're going to do this with it, whatever whatever it is that you're saying in your, in your solicitation letter, and then I get a generic thank you letter that doesn't tie back to that. How do I even remember that those are the, the same thing, right? whereas what what we find when we test it is the more that the thank you letter first of all is timely and and warm and affectionate and actually reports back on what it is i asked you to give the more likely you're going to give again and the more likely you are to build a relationship with me over time so it's it's everything from you know the simplicity of that to um, staking out opportunities to report back and to um, acknowledge and appreciate a donor without asking for something. You know, we we as an industry are so stuck because of the the cost, so stuck on this idea that like we can never send something out without soliciting. And uh, I've tested this before, and and sure enough, when you send something out without an ask and without an envelope, you don't make money in that solicitation or in that uh, communication. But the donors that get that often have a higher long-term revenue. And in fact, sometimes even have a higher annual value per donor. And and so I I think we've got to think about this in those terms and stop looking at what's the return on investment in this touch point, and what's the net revenue in this touch point, and start managing to what's my annual value per donor and am I increasing it? And what's my long-term net? Because you can't spend return on investment and, and there are plenty of ways to goose your upfront results and show a really great, you know, performance number in a campaign today that might actually hurt your long-term net revenue.
0: Yeah. And I think the best testament to what you said is the value of print newsletters. A lot of organizations moved away from print. They switched them over to email as email was up and coming. Um, But I think the real tell there is I don't know of many organizations that, um, have held on to their print newsletters that are looking to get rid of them because they are yeah. understanding the value to them. I went to a major donor event last year and, um, when I walk around these things, I like to, you know, get to know what brought you into the organization. What do you like most about it? Um, no kidding. 19 of the 20 donors that I talked to, um, said, I love that print newsletter. And, yep. um, that's an example of how you can deliver something to donors, tell stories. Um, you can um, softly talk about other ways to give such a donor advised funds. There's so much you could do with a print newsletter without asking anything. Um, in fact, and some organizations uh, do include an envelope and it's actually a very effective um, house file fundraising peel as well. But even if you don't do that, um, there's so much you could do with a print newsletter. But so many organizations, uh, when I bring this up, are afraid to even try it because of the cost. Yeah. Yes, there's a cost. Yes, there's a labor commitment. There's no question about it. Um, but it's one of those things that uh, brings a ton of value to donors and deepens the relationship in a very meaningful way. Um, do you think part of the um, the conversation that the sector needs to have is uh, kind of taking another look at testing? So we, we we talk so much about testing and optimization Um, When we talk about doing an A-B test with your creative or trying a different envelope, not so much with these bigger picture, longer tail tactics. So I'm thinking back to that conversation that you said about the organization that stopped receiving their donors under $50. Um, It's probably a very different conversation if they were to have tested that, or maybe added a third panel to say, hey, let's include a, an impact story with the receipt and see what the impact of that is and then measure out the data. Is Is that part of this conversation as well about needing to be a little bit bolder um, with testing things before we just make sudden changes or at least measuring the impact of, of these changes that we're thinking about making to our programs.
1: Yeah, I think it absolutely is. And I, and I think it also goes back to like, what's the end goal, right? So um, I would be very skeptical and very cautious of an organization that says, I'm specifically doing this to cut cost, right? Because, uh, you know, Tom Harrison, who is the former CEO of Russ Reed, and, you know, I, I worked under his leadership for probably a decade or so. He He was really famous in our walls and with our clients of saying, you can't cut your way to greatness, right? So, if cost cutting is your objective, I would argue you have a wrong objective, and and you know none of us can accomplish our mission by reducing cost. We actually probably have to increase cost in order to increase mission impact. Mm-hmm. So, so I would say make sure that the testing methodology and the strategy is about how do we grow and how do we maximize net return versus how do I just cut my cost? And, and, and then yes, you've got to test that. You know, And another organization that I worked with that um, made, made a similar decision, they didn't cut their, their thank you receipts, but they cut paper thank you receipts for anyone who gave a gift online. And so what we saw was donors who were giving across multiple channels, all of a sudden their retention rate dropped And they happened to be the most valuable audience uh, that 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 organization had and many organizations have to the tune of a million dollars of lost revenue in a 12 month period. And and what was fascinating is when we discovered why it happened, we turned it back on and started receding in paper again. And, you know, they didn't get a, a commensurate million dollar bounce, but they saw a significant increase enough to tell them, wow, this was a big mistake. We shouldn't do this again. Right so i think uh, again it's it's when we make assumptions without testing and without understanding really what the the long term implication is that we put a lot at risk in our organizations
0: right and that's a situation where uh, it kind of goes back to um the mentality we we saw you know, 10 15 years ago where this is an online donor this person wants to be yep. communicated with online but when you choose to stop sending them a receipt, you're making that decision for them. You're taking away yeah. that valuable touch point. And we know that multi-channel donors are more valuable. Donors who engage with multiple channels are more valuable. And here you're making a decision for a donor, taking that um, print engagement away from them, not at least stopping to measure the impact of what you're doing. So yeah. that's, you know, that's a great, another great example where just an A-B test that at least could steer you in the right direction over the long haul. Um, I know leadership is a, a, passion, a big passion area of yours and changing the conversation around leadership in the sector. Um, how much of that do you think is part of this equation? Do fundraisers, do people who work in this sector feel like they have the freedom to try bold things, the freedom to fail and learn from their failures? Is is Do we need a, a leadership shift to give people the confidence and flexibility to try some of these things that we're talking about.
1: Yeah, I, I think a, a lot of our challenge does come down to leadership, right and and it takes a really bold leader who's willing to fail publicly to do some of the things that we're talking about here. But I also think that we're not going to advance our mission without it. and you know I, I had a conversation recently with someone, that was was not willing to do some of the hard things, uh, like not asking for money in an appeal, or like um, starting to have deep conversations with donors versus just transaction level conversations with them. and And, you know, one of the questions that I asked her was, is your mission more important, or your personal comfort as a leader more important? Because if you answer that, by saying my mission is more important, then that requires you to start behaving differently. Right? And I I think that's a conversation that I wish more people in our sector would have because I I think that we get complacent really easily. and, And without the willingness of leaders to challenge assumptions and even to kind of look in the mirror and say, what is it that I'm doing Either, either by taking steps or not taking steps, that's holding my organization back from achieving mission. And, and you know, particularly in fundraising, what are the things that I'm doing that's causing us either to not pursue opportunities, to not develop more meaningful relationships with donors, to not value donors for who they are and not just what they can do for us? Uh, or, or you know, what is it that I'm doing that's that's holding my fundraisers back? Because those are the areas that that will really help us uh, move forward in a net revenue kind of transformational giving perspective, much more so than anything else in our sector. And I think, uh, I think two things. I think too few leaders are having that conversation right now. And I think most boards are abdicating their responsibility to push that kind of discussion at the C-level because they're comfortable because they don't know any better um, or because they don't want to rock the boat. And I, I think that's detrimental to our ability to deliver on mission.
0: It's something that I've become more empathetic to uh, now about 10 years into my journey of talking about on fundraising and connecting digital direct mail fundraising, different parts of the sector and having them work towards a shared purpose is that one thing that I've realized is that um, part of the reason why we don't see more testing and these these out of the box ideas or concepts from the cons- commercial sector making their way over is because um people are afraid to fail they're afraid that they're being judged by as a line item in their budget yes. and um if we want fundraisers to uh to embrace bold ideas and try new things and there certainly is a lot of courage mm-hmm. that goes along with long tail testing like like you were talking about um that needs to come from the top down, I think, it, and leaders need to create a space where failure is not just accept, accepted, but it's embraced, we learn from it, and it makes us better. And I think the best case study for that is uh, um, when NASA scientists were building, uh, were testing rockets for what eventually became the Saturn V rocket that took us to the moon, when they would have an explosion on the launch pad, or they'd have a model that wouldn't work, they would cheer and applaud because they knew that failure was taking us one step closer to the moon and if you think about everything through that prism um failure can be a very powerful thing if you learn from it if people aren't afraid to fail and i i i think that it's an important conversation within the context of of testing and, and all these other exciting ideas that you know we would love to see the sector adapt
1: yeah, you know, I, I think someone that probably a lot of your listeners are are, are going to know this name, um, but I I, I want to kind of highlight uh, Angie Moore, who's the chief development officer over at Care USA, right? So Angie's been in this sector for a long time. She's worked for a number of different organizations, both on the nonprofit side and in agencies. And she said to me a couple of years ago, um, she she put a challenge on the table and said, I want to get off of our nickel label acquisition premium because we're spending so much money to do this and it's producing a low dollar donor and our break even is you know X number of years. It's just too long. We're not able to generate the net we need to really impact mission overseas and we've got to fix this, right? And, and, and what I appreciated about it is there was a very strong level of clarity of what needed to be accomplished. And then she said, and I have to do it now. Like this is not a, don't, don't give me a three-year test plan, right? Figure this out now, and so the the team got together and we 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 started to brainstorm and and over a you know six to to ten month period, uh, started testing and and we were able to successfully test them off of a nickel label, um, into new audiences and and you know two things happened, the well three things. One, they acquired fewer donors, right? So that's scary for a lot of organizations. Oh no, we we're, we're, were 20% fewer donors, right? Um, but they acquired donors at a higher first-time gift. And at six months uh, after the test, those donors had like a 30% higher likelihood of converting to, to ongoing giving, right? So, um, you know, fewer donors, but better donors Retain longer term, and moving off of a premium track also meant that they were saving six figures in additional costs every year, right? So that's the kind of bold thinking and pushing that more of our, uh, more of the charities in in our sector need to be pushing. There are just very few people who actually have the guts, I think, to to really push for that. There's a lot of fear and trepidation, and in my mind, you know, Angie was able to do that because the leadership at Care. Said we trust you. Go do this. Figure this out for us. And and too often I think CEOs say things like that. But then when the first test doesn't work out, somebody gets fired, right? Right. Um, or budget gets pulled back because they freak out. And and there, there's not this like you know strength of backbone to say, well, we knew something like this could happen, and 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 we're okay if the rocket blows up on the on the launch pad because it's getting us towards the goal. Um, A a lot of this has to do, I think, with fear and and people being concerned about what it means if they're not successful immediately.
0: Right. And it's not a one-off. I I can't tell you how many times looking at package level data that you see that the packages that require fewer donors have a higher cost to acquire, um, tend to have better retention rates and lifetime value, Um, but are you working in an environment where you're going to be given... The flexibility to wait 12 months to see this pan out and that's the roadblock like you're saying that a lot of fundraisers run into is um if you're being judged on a monthly or a quarterly basis very difficult to make a big mm-hmm. change like that but if you're given the flexibility um almost every time i think it's going to pan out if you shift to fewer more meaningful donors that you're bringing into your program so that that's a great story um and the other last thing is we're preparing to to wrap things up, Andrew, and we appreciate you being so generous with your time, is um, your initial comment about uh, this debate about acquisition versus retention. So often I see it framed as kind of an either or thing. And I tell you that 16 years working as a direct mail list broker. So most of what I do day to day is tied to acquisition. Mm-hmm. Um The most exciting prospect that I can work with is someone who I know has a strong back-end program and a really solid uh, pipeline for creating major gifts, donor-advised funds, things like that. Because it's so so much more sustainable because you're not necessarily uh, living in fear of the next downturn where you see a slight dip in response rate. Um, But I actually think it can lead to more scalable prospecting it's a bit of a climb to get there. It has to be proven out. But if you can prospect confidently knowing that your investment is going to pay for itself over the long term, I, I think it is a much more sustainable way over the long term. And, and that's a conversation that I would like to see change in the sector is that um, we all kind of have, have the same goals and a stronger house file program doesn't necessarily have to mean less prospecting or vice versa, but there's still seems to be that competition dynamic, which I don't necessarily find to be um, helpful for 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 building stronger fundraising programs.
1: Yeah, I, I think there's a couple of reasons for that. Uh, and I agree with you. Um, I, I actually think when you have strong retention rates and you have a thriving major gift program, um, then it makes it really easy for me to come back in and say, okay, you should do more direct mail acquisition. You should do more digital acquisition because if you've got everything else running well and you're able to actually build relationships off of off of that initial transactional engagement then then the math makes sense all day long to invest more because you can turn it into something better on the back end where where this falls apart is with an organization that doesn't have that back end infrastructure that lives just off of transactional revenue right because any any um Decent, you know, any any decline, any change in retention rates and things like that um, means that you go upside down in that investment, right? And if, sometimes for long term, multiple years. But um, you know, the the issue that I take is is primarily with um, with fundraising agencies that seem to think the solution for everything is do more acquisition, right? Um or, or mail more, right? When when the solution ought to be build better relationships, Mm. Um, develop the tools and the internal muscle to turn a transaction into a relationship. and, 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 then once we get there, then absolutely do more acquisition, but you can't fix the problem by just doing more, you know, kind of what I would refer to as like being on the hamster wheel more, right. You've got to actually step back and say, what's broken here and let's fix that and then we can do more. I, I'm not saying cut acquisition. I'm not saying don't do it. I just um, firmly believe that it doesn't solve the problem of retention, right? We're, we're just lying to ourselves if we say, well, wait a minute, our file grew. Here, here's an example. I was I was talking to an organization recently. They've doubled their donor file size since 2018. Doubled, right? So they've gone from 15,000 to 30,000 or some some number like that. But their retention rate is less than 12%. And when I look at their their donors who've given a gift of $500 or more, their retention rate is 3%, right? And so what I said to them was, I don't want you to think about acquisition for the next two years. I want you to build better relationships with the donors you already have, get more of them to give additional gifts, get more of them to come sit down with you and have a conversation or at least take a phone call. If you can't do that, you have no business spending money on acquisition and asking new donors to give to you because you can't even hold on to those relationships. Like, like, what right do we have to to engage donors and to ask them to give their hard-earned money if we have such a broken system that less than five percent of the people who give meaningful gifts to us ever give again? Right. That's that's a culture problem. That's not a fundraising problem.
0: All right. Make makes an awful lot of sense, and I, I do think it's putting. The cart before the horse if you're bringing all these donors into an organization but you have a leaky bucket and you haven't even started to attempt to address those leaks and yeah. um i and i i think if you do patch those leaks or as best as possible um the rest takes care of itself because you'll be able to prospect with Mm -hmm. confidence and probably invest even more into prospecting because of those stronger relationships. Um, in the couple of minutes we have left, Andrew, uh, we have a little game we like to play with some of our guests uh, called five asks. Um, Okay. Get to know a little bit more about you. Of course, the ask is the most important part in the fundraising process. And we hope this segment is equally valuable for our listeners. So uh, would you like to play our uh, little friendly game here? Yeah, let's do it. Okay. Um, you are a new farmer. Um, you could feel free yeah. to elaborate on that, but I wonder: is there anything from your fundraising experience which has helped you become a better farmer?
1: Yes, and and vice versa as well. I think the you know what what has been really insightful to me is uh, we we have a lot of animals. We have about two hundred, and what I am learning uh, is that you have to re-establish connection and relationship every day uh both with the animals and with your donors and and so that that's the thing that i think has been the most insightful in the near term Yeah, very good.
0: I, I think fundraisers are very good at um anything that involves a lot of moving parts where you're constantly having to try new things yep. and clearly you know farming certainly that yeah um uh, Who were? uh, Do you have any um, any mentors that you'd like to mention that uh, were critical for you coming up in the business?
1: Yeah, so some of my greatest friendships and relationships, um, uh, Jeff Clewer, who runs a company called Viewspark. uh, He and I have been friends for twenty, almost twenty five years now, and. I credit a lot of my success in this industry to to Jeff. Um, uh, another person I think who's really shaped kind of my leadership thinking uh, is a woman named Stacey Gerdner who runs a company called Praxis Group. She used to be the chief people officer at World Vision. And so much of what I have come to know and believe about um, being a good leader uh, comes from Stacy.
0: What do you like to do when you're getting uh, to escape from work?
1: Uh, these days, what I what I tend to do is spend time with my three daughters. So I've got a 15 year old, an 11 year old, and a five year old. Um, so spending time with them, spending time with my wife, and just being out. Uh, you know, I, I went out before this call and and was able to pet some goats before uh, before I came in to talk to you. So it's those kind of things. Uh,
0: that's a great way to relieve stress. Uh, yeah. Animals are are wonderful like that. They're they're very in tune with us for sure. Um, what are your uh, favorite? Uh, favorite sports teams
1: you know I uh, I don't really follow any sports teams years ago I, I played baseball for 15 years I played football. Um, my daughters are soccer players so anything we do um, these days is is primarily related to watching them play. Um, I do, however, my guilty pleasure, uh, is watching mix, mixed martial arts. My 15 year old and I, um, have been, uh, participating in and training in, in, um, uh, Muay Thai kickboxing for about the last five years. So I, I spend a lot of time, uh, if I'm going to watch a sport, it's going to be that.
0: Wow. Very cool. Um, and last question, um, for any fundraiser who, um, is struggling or concerned about the year of the head, uh, what's one step they could take tomorrow to improve their situation?
1: Uh, I'm going to give you two. First would be pick up the phone and call a donor because the best way to protect our revenue and mission impact is to get close to donors. And secondly, is to remember that, um, what is this? We're recording this on January 12th. There's a lot of runway still in this year So for as much as we might be concerned about what's going on uh, economically or in the world, uh, remember that you've got a lot of time to close the year. So I I would say stay the course and do the things that drive relationship and revenue. And don't worry about the rest of the stuff. Uh,
0: Quick bonus question. Uh, You've been really successful at... Uh, building a profile of as a thought leader in this industry. Any advice for anyone who aspires to be a thought leader in the nonprofit space, or maybe is sitting on some ideas that they think are valuable that they'd like to get out there?
1: Yeah, uh, my my good friend Kat Landa, who um, I think is is pretty brilliant, and and I love to to watch and listen to her. Um, you know, I, I was I was stuck at one point, and she said to me, "Dude, just publish." Like, just get it out there, right? So I think um, I, I will share her feedback and her response, which is just publish. Like, if if you have something you want to say and you, you think it's valuable, just start talking about it. Like, the, nothing changes until we start.
0: Oh, great advice. And uh, for listeners that would like to get in touch with you, what's the best way for them to do that?
1: Best way is probably to hit me on LinkedIn. Um, I'm I'm there quite often. Otherwise, uh, it's andrew.olson at Dickerson Baker. It's baker with two All All
0: right. Well, Andrew, thank you so much for this great conversation. I've really enjoyed this and um I'm eager to watch your work in the new year and feel free to come back anytime and let us know how things are going.
1: Thanks a lot, Dan. Appreciate you, man. Have a E-tip. great new year. You tip
0: Thanks for listening to the Dynamic Nonprofits Podcast and today's conversation with Andrew Olson. If you enjoyed our discussion, please subscribe to the dynamic nonprofits podcast we are available wherever great podcasts are heard and if you're getting value out of the show and you're hearing discussions that maybe you're not hearing elsewhere in the sector the best way to support our mission to advocate for an unsilent approach to fundraising is to rate and review the show it really helps in the rankings and it helps us find more great guests just like andrew olson and if you want to continue the conversation with me feel free to connect on linkedin i I am Dan Saunders. Thanks again for listening and I hope to talk with you real soon.